From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, let's begin with the virus. As ever, ministers meeting today to consider imposing tougher restrictions on people arriving from abroad. Britain so far identified 77 cases of the variant first detected in South Africa. The health secretary says cases are linked to travellers arriving in the UK rather than through community transmission. Yeah, and then Matt Hancock defending the government's vaccine approach of giving the second Pfizer jab up to 12 weeks after the first. This policy is going to save lives. In a situation where there's only a limited supply, you want to get as many people to have as much protection as possible, as quickly as possible. This is the strategy the government has been running with pretty much since the start of the vaccination programme to, as Matt Hancock says, get at least some protection for as many people as possible. A senior scientific government advisor is saying there's no real evidence that it reduces the efficacy of the vaccine. And other countries have started using the same approach amid concerns about supply. Almost one million Britons now have been given the jab in the last two days. The total now, Roger... Over 6 million people. Pretty impressive. Yes, I saw a startling statistic saying 70% of all vaccinations globally in the last two days have been done in Britain. Well, joining us now is Barbara Keeley, who's Labour MP for Worsley and Eccles South. Barbara, welcome to the programme and thank you for being with us. I mean, the vaccine rollout has been impressive, hasn't it? Well, there's been some issues with supply and I think certain parts of the country have not managed to vaccinate us such a large proportion of others, but on the whole, it, it, it's very good because this is very important. This is the light at the end of the tunnel and we need everyone to take up the vaccine when they're offered it. Uh, Barbara, good to have you. Good morning. Uh, how has this gone in your own constituency in terms of getting as many people uh, within those t- key age groups vaccinated as possible? It, it, I mean, it, it's been a wonderful effort and I really want to thank all the, the vaccinators people who are organising that within the NHS. Um, people are, have been you can only put it as, as desperate to get their vaccines. And even though it's been very cold and very difficult for people to get there, uh, they've done so. So let's just hope we can keep this off and, and get all those vulnerable groups vaccinated as soon as we can. I mean, are, are there some people who are refusing it? We've, we've heard reports uh, over the weekend that many people in the BAME community are less likely to, to want to take it than others. Have you noticed anything of that in your constituency? We haven't heard much about refusals yet. Um, I, I know some people are, are, are wondering about whether they should have one vaccine or another, and they're you know, possibly worried about allergies and reactions and that sort of thing. But on the whole, uh, people have really wanted to do that. I think once we once we get the message 
hasn't been much data available on who is being vaccinated. We really do want to reach into those uh, communities, get the message out there that the vaccine is safe, that it doesn't contain anything, uh, that people, you know, for faith reasons couldn't take it. Um, for that, I think it's really important that government works with local authorities because um, there's, there's a lot of good knowledge uh, in our uh, public health team how to reach into those communities and we should really use them so that we do that. And, and what about that working partnership so far throughout the pandemic? Has, has that worked well, the communication between local authorities where you are and central government? Well, a lot of course have been driven nationally and I think that the one, the, the couple of substantial frustrations local authorities have not always had the data. You know, things like uh, contact tracing in the test and trace system. It took over a few months to get all the data back to our public health people, and that's been happening, and that's, that's good. I think the other thing is that, and we've got a debate on this in Parliament today, uh, councils have not been funded for the extra work that they've been doing. I mean, my local authority, Salford, has taken on a huge amount of extra work in supporting the community in that public health effort, controlling infection in care homes and so on. And, uh, you know, the, the government has really bought at doing what it said it would do, uh, which is, you know, giving, uh, giving councils whatever they needed to, to fight the virus. So that we haven't seen that. So we're debating that later in Parliament. I'm hoping to speak in that debate. What about the issue with the borders at the moment? Because there's great concern, as you know, about variants of the virus coming in from, from outside and a suggestion that the best way is to restrict people coming in. Indeed, the government's moving very much in that way. Would you advocate a blanket ban or quarantine hotels or tracking phones? What would, what would be the thing that would work, do you think? Well, I, I think it's very concerning that the government is only just starting to think about requiring negative tests for inbound travellers. I mean, you know, I've asked about this and I've asked about this. We've been calling for this since last time. It, it, it does seem crazy, doesn't it, when we've got the levels of transmission we've got to be just allowing people to come here from parts of the world without those negative tests. And certainly, uh, you know, um, work I've done inquiries I've been involved in in Parliament, um, those places which have actually required quarantine um, and, and quarantining people in hotels um, have, have been very successful. And if you look at New Zealand, New Zealand has been so successful in eliminating the virus that they're now having, you know, sporting events, summer festivals, you know, and, and just a normal life of no restrictions. That's what you can do if you eliminate the virus. And I think there's a real lesson there for us. But, I, I mean, things like quarantine hotels, are they things, do you think, that Britons will be open to? I mean, a big debate throughout the whole of this pandemic has been the, the level of liberty that you retain. And different countries have reacted very differently, of course, based on on the norms and, and, and the cultures in those countries. Do you really see Brits being willing to quarantine in sort of essentially state-run facilities when they come back to some of them to their own country? Well, look at our tennis professionals over in, in Melbourne. They're, they're doing that, aren't they? They ha- they're doing that because they have to do it. I think you, you can see how other countries, obviously Australia is another example, have eliminated the virus or brought it right down because they've been willing to take that step. But it has worked well um, in places like New York City. Uh, and the difficulty is, I think, is if you require people to, to quarantine or isolate at home, uh, they may not be able to do that. It may, you know, there may be too many people in the home that couldn't do that. And of course, you know, we, we are in a situation where hotels are pretty empty at the moment. So, you know, logistically, we could make this work, I think. Uh, but given that we, you know, when we, when our tennis professionals travel to other countries, they have to do it, I think we should look at it too. 
Okay. Barbara, thanks so much for being with us. That's Barbara Keeley there, Labour MP for Worsley and Eccles South, getting a sense of some of the views at the moment about how dealing with this crisis uh, is going to work and how the, the difficulties the government's getting into, but also the questions, I suppose, of, 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 of causing people to lose their liberty, in a sense, by restricting them when they come into their country and perhaps even their own country, which, of course, is an issue in itself. So our thanks there to Barbara Keeley. Let's have a quick look at what else is making the world making news in the world of politics uh, today, Sebastian. What, what, what's that? Yeah, so I mean, there were two real issues for the government coming to this week, weren't they? One of them was the, the border policy. And we talked about that a little bit with Barbara a moment ago. What do you do? Do you go for a blanket ban? Do you go for quarantine hotels? Do you start tracking phones? There are all sorts of options for dealing with that. The other one that Boris Johnson is grappling with today is around schools. So Tory backbenchers ramping up calls for schools to reopen. The Sunday Times saying that children won't go back to school next month and possibly not before the Easter holidays, which um, I think to some may have come as a little bit of surprise, I know it's pretty tough if you are juggling working and, and homeschooling. So the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, isn't denying the plans that were, were spoken about on the Andrew Marr show yesterday. Education Secretary Gavin Williamson expected this week to rule out children returning to the classroom after the February half-term holiday, which I think was seen by some as, uh, as, as a point where that could start to happen. The Telegraph is saying that this has prompted 12 Tory MPs, including backbench 1922 Committee Chair Graham Brady to back the Us For Them campaign, calling for schools to fully reopen for all children. So there is a, a lobby building, I suppose, within Parliament and certainly within the Conservative Party as well, for schools to open. Always a difficult thing to deal with uh, if your name is Boris Johnson uh, when you're, you're dealing with these, these balancing acts. That's what this comes down to. Yes, it, it does. It's very much an issue and it clearly is going to be an issue for the Conservatives. At the moment, interestingly, as we heard there really from Barbara, there seems to be a lot of cross-party support for maintaining a fairly... Uh, tough line in terms of restrictions but that may of course fray meanwhile what is going on in the devolved nations well one interesting thing is what's happening with the conservative groups in different parts of uh, conservative and labor groups in wales and scotland we saw earlier of course labor losing its leader in uh, scotland and now the leader of the welsh conservatives has stood down and indeed the welsh conservatives have appointed a new leader of the party in the welsh parliament the senate after Paul Davis resigned at the weekend following his role in a booze-fuelled parliamentary bash in December. Replacing him is another Davis, Andrew Davis, who returned to the leadership role that he was ousted from in 2018. So what can we expect from the new leader? Well, he recently made waves on Twitter when comparing rioters at the US Capitol to Keir Starmer's campaign for a second Brexit referendum. That did not go down well. Yeah, it got him into a bit of trouble, didn't it? And, and you've got to remember what the timeline looks like in Wales. We're heading for uh, for the Senate election currently scheduled to happen in May if it doesn't get postponed uh, because of the virus. So it's a really key time for Welsh politics. You've got uh, the incoming Andrew Davis saying his party's going to put forward a positive plan to get Wales moving again, unleash our country's potential. Of course, that also comes against the backdrop of, of independence, particularly in the other parts of the union. I mean, you have um, Nicola Sturgeon again making very loud noises about an independence referendum in Scotland if the SNP wins the elections there in May. And then you had that poll in the Sunday Times that showed the majority of people in Northern Ireland backing uh, a, a vote on reunification there. So the Welsh will really be listening to this very clearly, especially those within unionist parties such as the Welsh Conservatives. 
And finally, the special relationship. Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, they've struck different tones on the prospects of a UK-US trade deal. They both had the same conversation. Prime Minister becoming the first European leader to receive a phone call since President Biden's inauguration. The UK statement said it covered issues, strengthening bilateral ties, collective defence, fighting climate change, but also mentioned discussing, discussing the benefits of a potential free trade deal. However... I mean, we all have conversations, I guess, where we perhaps think differently of what was said during <laughs> it. Um, the statement from the White House didn't mention any discussion of trade at all. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now let's get on to a topic that is, frankly, a major issue that is going to dog the government for quite some time. It's the potential breakup of the United Kingdom, rising calls for independence in Scotland and Northern Ireland. It's being addressed by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who says COVID has exposed tensions between Whitehall and the UK's nations and regions. He's writing the Daily Telegraph and he's warning that the UK must reform now and how it was governed or risk becoming a failed state. Brown is advocating a federal system similar to what we have over in the US. He's also urging Boris Johnson to set up a commission to review how the country is run. It comes as several polls, as I was mentioning in the first part of the programme, has suggested rising support for Scottish independence and a potential border vote as well in Northern Ireland. Well, Gordon Brown's idea has got a big thumbs up from one of the most prominent of England's regional leaders, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, who told us on Bloomberg Radio he strongly supports Brown's concept of a Senate of Regions replacing the House of Lords. I would strongly agree with Gordon on that, as well as more devolution of power out of Westminster into the English regions. Roger, there was a report uh, a couple of years ago that concluded that the UK was the most politically over-centralised country in the OECD, uh, with all power, pretty much all power held at the national level, but also the most regionally unbalanced. And those two things are connected. If you, if you concentrate all political power in one postcode in London, I don't think you should be surprised that England becomes a very, a very divided nation. And all this speaks to the promise of levelling up the North and Midlands, which was, of course, one of the key pledges of Boris Johnson's government after they won the 2019 election and seized seats in the former Labour Red Wall. A new report says that it's all become four times harder because of the virus crisis and the pandemic risks levelling down even prosperous places in southern England. It's all coming from a study by the Centre for Cities, and that says 634,000 people outside the southeast now need to find secure, well-paid jobs to level up the country, and that compares to 170,000 back in March. Well, joining us now is Paul Swinney, Director of Policy and Research at the Centre for Cities. Paul, welcome back to the programme, and thanks for being with us again. Now, you talk in this report about a possible nightmare worst-case scenario where levelling up becomes up to eight times harder with 1.3 million people needing a job to level up area in areas outside the southeast, How do you come to all these conclusions? Good morning. Well, 
the way we do it is, because interestingly the government hasn't actually defined what it means by levelling up, is we use a definition uh, which looks at unemployment, well, the number of people claiming unemployment-related benefits, because it's the, while it doesn't capture everything we want to capture in terms of levelling up, it certainly is the most timely measure that we've got. And what that, in order to do that, or by doing that, it allows us to see what is the increase in the number of people who are claiming um, these benefits as a result of their employment situation. And we see these, this four times increase that we've seen since March um, as a result of COVID playing out across the north of England. And, and, and what about the geography of this? Where are the worst hit places in terms of difficulties for levelling up or, or making it harder to level up? Well, interestingly, there isn't any clear geography to it. You know, COVID hasn't played out along traditional north-south patterns that we tend to see when we talk about different measures of economic performance in the UK. Um, so you'll have places in the, um, in the North and Midlands like Birmingham that have been hit very hard. Um, but you've also got places now that have, were prosperous going into the recession, such as Slough and Crawley and London, which also have, have really been hit hard by the pandemic and have gone from places that were uh, places of fairly low levels of unemployment to being places of very high unemployment. So that gives the government two challenges now. One is that its, it's key uh, focus of levelling up has become four times harder. But now a second task has emerged, which is how do you try and make sure that previously prosperous places recover so that you don't end up with a, in a position of not levelling up, but actually instead of levelling down going on in the UK economy. So it's, that's running on, on the spot to, to stand still, isn't it, in effect? That's exactly where, where we are as a, as a result of COVID. And it's, um, you know, we think that in a lot of places... The, the recovery will be will be fairly swift so long as the uh, the chancellor extends things like the furlough scheme which is in place to try and protect jobs during covid as long as they remain in place while we've got social distancing measures in place um but those sorts of things are going to be really important as well as sort of a, a focus on trying to get those southern cities um firing again if we don't want to be in a position of of, sort of treading water or indeed even sort of going back over rather than trying to go forward in terms of growing the economy and closing divides within it so what's the solution then? How does the government need to act now to make sure that this doesn't become a huge issue? Because ultimately, this is what they said going into the election that they were going to solve. And it looks like, as you say, it may get even worse than it was before. Well, there are two things, broad things the government needs to do. Um, first is a continued response to COVID, which is more of a, a short term approach, which is things like extending the furloughing scheme beyond April. Because if we remove that, um, remove that support now, then we will go from levelling up being four times harder to being eight times harder because of so many people are held or support or their jobs are supported by furlough currently. Um, and we want to be doing things like making the, the, the temporary increase that we see in universal credit payments, the benefit payment, made permanent. So there's a temporary £20, 20 pounds increase per week. That should be made permanent. In terms of the longer term um, things we then need to be doing, it is thinking about how to try and achieve levelling up. Um, and that is then doing things around um, skills investment, around transport investment in our big cities, but probably not elsewhere if it's going to be effective, um, doing things around trying to improve the performance of city centres in particular, and also doing things around devolution too, because we've got too much power, as Andy Burnham was just saying there, centred within, within Whitehall um, in the UK and not actually distributed out across the country. Um, and so there's key things that need to be done. But the government has to now set out a plan about how exactly it's going to do that because it got elected in on levelling up. But clearly COVID has gotten the way. But time is starting to run out in terms of actually starting to set out a plan for what it wants to do to try and bring about change across the country.
Well, Paul, let me exp explore in more detail with you that, that line there, which, which echoes what Andy Burnham, as you say, was saying about the need for de devolving power. What sort of powers and to what sort of level of government do these things need to go to do what you're saying? Yes, that's a great question. So there's, uh, there's two elements to that. First is that uh, we should see a, a levelling up of powers that London has to other parts of the country, because I think we're now into the, to, uh, this year marks the 20th year of the, of the Mayor of London being in existence and all the powers that, that that office has held, which have also developed over time. No other country, or no, sorry, no other city in the UK holds those types of powers. And so we should see other cities getting similar powers to, to what London's got. But the second thing that should be done, which is related then to the, the geography it, it goes to, is that we need to have a reform of local government because at the moment we've got too many local authorities that um, chop up the very limited power that local government has into even smaller pieces. So we've got loads of duplication going on in the system and it really means that local government isn't as effective as what it could be. Now, if we were to make larger local government authorities, so if we were to have one authority, for example, covering the city of Nottingham rather than the nine that we have currently, um, that would allow Nottingham to make better use of the resources it has. It would make it better able to um, to receive more powers down from government because it's got an institution that can actually um, deal with those powers and use them in the way that, that we want. And it would also allow uh, a place like Nottingham to have a new relationship with government too around financing. So what currently happens is the government says each year, here's your money and you've got to, here's your pocket money and you've got to spend it within the, this year and you've got to balance the books and then next year we'll come and give you some more money. They can't borrow between years, they can't set out a long-term plan about how they want to do funding because of the way that central government controls local funding. And so through that reorganisation of local government, which gives more powers down, it should also give them greater freedoms around how they spend their money that they already have so they can actually use that in a more effective manner too. And, and what about urban flight? I mean, this was one of the themes that was talked about heavily at the start of the pandemic, this idea that people are going to start leaving cities, they can work remotely, you're going to see this move to the suburbs, to the countryside, uh, and, and this huge demographic shift as a result. How much of that are we really seeing? And how much of that does that impact this sort of policy making? Well, we haven't got a lot of data at the moment to be able to say either way as to whether that is happening. What we do know is that uh, London in particular loses people to the rest of England and Wales. And that has been happening for, for many, many years. And so the pandemic, if, if that was to continue during the pandemic, that wouldn't be something new. And the reason why London's population has continued to grow is because it's got a very high birth rate and it's got a very high level of international immigration coming into it. Um, when, if and when the data services, what I would suspect that we would see is that we won't actually see much of a change to that pattern. And that I don't think there would be a, a massive increase in flight um, and I think that's because if you look at the types of jobs that have located in London in particular, in other big cities like Manchester and Birmingham, they've located there despite the cost of doing so, despite the high rents of doing so, the congestion, the pollution. And the big reason why businesses do that is because there's a really big value of having face-to-face -face interaction with clients, competitors and, and collaborators as well. And indeed, that's why we have so many businesses crammed in the centre of London or so many businesses crammed in the centre of Manchester, despite it being so expensive. Now, I don't think COVID changes that requirement for face-to-face interaction. So once we're able to start doing that in a safe way again, which hopefully is sooner rather than later, I think, again, there'll be this big desire for those types of businesses to be wanting to be based in the centre of our big cities. And if that's the case, we'll still see people want to come and live in and around them to access the jobs and the opportunities that are there. Paul, the, the, the revival of, of cities and, and their success uh, is going to depend, I mean, you, you're talking about devolving powers 
down to the city level to let them do that. But a lot of it seems to depend on the calibre of the people who are in charge, and that can be pretty varied, as you know. And we have some very prominent people, like like like, like uh, uh, the, the mayor of Greater Manchester, but also, I suppose, Birmingham too. But not always. And isn't that really going to be a big problem, getting the right calibre of people in to do it? That is definitely a problem, and I think that is something that, that central government uh, worries about, and it's definitely something I've heard um, them say to me sort of many times over the years that I've been meeting with them about it. That's why this reorganisation of local government is so important, because we, we've currently got, I think, a, a local government system which is underpowered, um, and that isn't particularly attractive then for a certain mm. type of person to go and work for it. If what is interesting is where the government has tried to set some of this right by creating um, you know, a greater Manchester mayor or, um, yeah. or a mayor for the West, West Midlands. You see the type of person who's then gone for the top job is very different to what you, you get for your usual council leader. So Andy Burnham used to be in the oh. cabinet um, when Labour was in government, for example. And uh, that's, that's where we'll see a change, we think, in terms of attracting those people in. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.